Well, it's certainly good to be among you um, and not among the dead. Um, turns out that God in his kindness, I um, was exposed on last Thursday. I had to quarantine for five days and then I was tested this morning and I tested negative. So that is the end of that, at least for now. Uh, who knows about tomorrow, but tonight, um, any of you women who would like to give me a kiss, that's, uh, it'd be perfectly permissible now that I have no uh, COVID. Um, also, you're wondering, why in the world is he wearing those white socks? Well, um, I mean, only Rob Joyner could get away with wearing socks like that with this outfit. But um, uh, the, the, the ugly truth is that I asked my wife to bring me some more socks because I had left my socks at home. And um, would you like to tell them, Sue? <laughs> so get a load of that, honey. <laughs> Okay, uh, enough of that. Let's get back to Exodus chapter 6. And um, we have somewhat of a lengthy passage in front of us, and I, I, I cannot talk myself into not reading it to you, um, but it is lengthy and, and, and there's a lot to say, and so let me try to read it as fast as I can. I'm going to read you 13 verses, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6, and we'll um, comment on it in a minute. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. land." God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from this... <clears throat> from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you, for I, uh, <clears throat> I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. There it is. This is the next development in... um, in Moses' relationship with Pharaoh and the extraction of the people of God out from underneath their bondage and into the promised land. Now, gang, you may remember, at least from last week, a little bit of what I did last week about what I I, I took you to uh, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and showed you that Moses was at the end of his rope. Um, In fact, so far gone was he um, that he accused God of evil. Why have you done this evil to me? And, I, and then I use, this, that, I use that to tell you a story about the, a thin slice of the eruption in our lives that took place, oh, 35 years ago now. Okay, but here's my point. Um, so there's Moses at the end of his rope accusing God of evil at the end of chapter four, uh, 5. We do not know uh, how much time elapsed between the end of 5 and the beginning of 6. 
But it is fair to say, and probably most likely to say, that what you find in verse 1 of chapter 6 comes right on the heels of, there's no time elapse. So, here's, Ma- here's Moses accusing God of evil, and God says to him, he, it, it's like he ignores that and says, now you're going to see. I got you where I want you now, Moses. You're finally over all of your impressions with your own abilities to work miracles. Now you're where I want you. Remember that principle from Tozer? Rarely does God use a man significantly until he hurts him deeply. Well, he's hurt. And so now he's ready to be used significantly. You go back in there and you tell him. Um, At this point, guys, what you get, particularly in verses 2 through 9, is a pep talk. A pep talk to a downtrodden, depressed, disillusioned servant of God. Um, And guys, it is very important that you see how God does this. Um, So somebody downtrodden and depressed comes to see me and I say, well, you know, I know you failed and you got fired at that job, but you can do it. You can, you know, you need to get, (coughs) you need to get in there and fight harder. That's not what you have here. You can do it, Moses. I'll be with you. You can do it. That's not what he does. That's not what God, that's not how God deals with Moses. The pep talk in essence says, Moses, you are not the mover here. I am. It's not going to be dependent upon your great leadership skills or all the miracles that you can work, Moses. Because Moses, this is not about who you are and how you're gifted. Moses, it's about me. Folks, I want you to see in this text, these this two through nine here. Did you notice, as I read it, that he says, I am the Lord four times. Look at that. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Um, Verse uh, uh, 6, I am the Lord. Uh, Verse 7, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord. Do you see, folks, that's just the first hint. Do you see what what God is doing to inspire his servant to go serve him? Here's what you need, Moses, is not some kind of nonsense about how strong you are. What you need, Moses, is to know how strong I am. I am the Lord here, Moses. <coughs> Notice in, in verse 2. Uh, I am the Lord, I appear, 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, as God Almighty. You know, I love to say this every time I say that word Almighty because I think the, the, the average concept of God these days is that he's not Almighty, but he's some mighty. But the real mighty, the real might of the universe is, uh, is found in the hands of man. He's not Almighty. I'll tell you who's almighty in the, in the minds of many, or even perhaps most. Man is almighty. But what, what, what God is doing with a downtrodden servant, he's trying to give him a little pep talk, and he says, I want you not to look at your abilities, I want you to look at mine. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord God almighty. 
Now, guys, look also. We don't have time to pick them all out. But I want you to notice in this paragraph the numerous mentions of the first person singular pronoun I. I am the Lord. But by my name, the Lord, I, I established, I have heard the groanings of my people. I am the Lord. I will bring you. I will deliver you. I will take you. There's just, you know, I, I started to count them. I thought, there's just too many in there to count. First person singular. So what is God doing? Reminding Moses how skilled he is? No. He is seeking to draw Moses' attention away from his own depression and onto the bigness and greatness of God himself. Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen. If you're depressed or find yourself tend to, a tendency to depress, here's one of the solutions. Stop gazing around in your own navel. And start looking at the the almightiness of this God that you say you believe in. You want to get out of that trough you're in? Then go fix your attention upon who God is and what he's done. Stop all this silliness about your own self-image. I think one of the most Damaging things we've done as parents, and we did it too, is try to establish some kind of strong self-image. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll say it again. Anything that begins with the word self, you need to run from. And that's not what God does with Moses. He says, Moses, you, you get your eyes off of you and you look at me and we'll go get this thing done. I've remembered my covenant. I know that you have a short memory, but I don't. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you've ever heard this word before. I've, I've used it in here before. But those, those terms like I remembered, it's not like God said, oh, I should have had a V8. Um, when, when, when you find words like that, those are called anthropomorphisms. Uh, anthropos, man, morphe, I mean, uh, like or similar. It's man-like language. When the Bible says, uh, yea, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, do you honestly think God takes naps? That's anthropomorphic language. That's language that he uses that you and I will understand uh, because he's condescended to make himself known to us. Guys, does God have eyes? No, but the scripture says he does, <clears throat> but he doesn't have eyes. He's a spirit, but can he see? So how's he going to communicate that to people like us? He's going to talk about eyes because we all, oh, okay, all right, I get that. That's anthropomorphic language, ladies and gentlemen. It's all through the Bible, particularly the Psalms. But when God says, I remember my covenant, it's not like he forgot it. And somebody jostled his memory. Oh, yeah. No, it's just, it's just something that had been long forgotten among, among Israel. And God says, I haven't forgotten it. All right, but guys, <clears throat> um, I, I, I want to 
make this point too because I think it's just glorious. Um, verse three, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now you see that Lord is all caps, so that's the yod Hey vav Hey. That's what's called the Hebrew tetragrammaton. <clears throat> um, it's, a, it's a name so holy they wouldn't even say it. In fact, they wouldn't. How do you pronounce Y-H-V-H? That's, that's what that is. How do you pronounce? I mean, read this from this. <laughs> how do you? Uh, you have, I mean, it's, it's unpronounceable. And so when they got to it, they just used the word Adonai. Because the word, the term that, that, that referred to God was too sacred to take up on their lips. <clears throat> now, but notice, I appeared to them as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known. Why? Why? Did, why? What's behind that? Why, why do you think, first of all, God did that? <clears throat> Here's why. <clears throat> Before you can ever understand this, there's going to have to be a deliverance performed. You're going to have to taste and see the deliverance of God on your behalf. And once you've seen him stretch forth his hand on your behalf, then you'll know him like this. Guys, <clears throat> I've often said that, I mean, deliverance has to take place before I can understand this. I've often said, in fact, I said it in my systematics class a couple of weeks ago, and the guy said, well, I don't even like your explanation. I said, well, okay, it's the best I got. Um, I, I've often said sin functions in the same way. Um, you know, gang, all Christians, whether you're Reformed or Arminian, you got the problem with the existence and the origin of sin. And I've always said that the reason that sin was allowed by God is because there were certain things about his character that you would never be able to see unless sin existed. If there were no sin, how would you understand forgiveness or grace or mercy? So you've got to have sin to understand those things. Well, you've got to have deliverance to understand that. And once you see God stretch forth his arm to extract you from your own sin, then the name Yahweh becomes precious to you. I've got to hurry. <clears throat> Gang, there is something in this text that is so tender in my mind. <clears throat> but we got robbed of it by the English translation. It's in verse 7. It says, um, <clears throat> I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. <clears throat> Gang, that I will take you to be my people. That's not, that's not a, a that's adding something to the Hebrew words. <clears throat> The Hebrew is simply, I will take you to me. Gang, that's the essence of redemption. I will take you to me. I don't need to be in another group or another nation. I mean, 
take you to be my people. I don't need to be my people. What I need is to be his. I will take you to me. Such tenderness and intimacy in that statement in the Hebrew. I will take you to me. Guys, how could you possibly ever dream that God would take you to be his and that that would be some kind of temporary relationship? I mean, there are all kinds of professing people under the Christian rubric who say that you can be lost, you can be saved and then lost. I will take you to me. But then I don't know that I can hold you. <laughs> well, we'll see. I don't know how things are going to go out here. You know, I mean, it might, things might just stay. Who knows? God says, I will take you to me. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. It's a permanent, uh, a permanent relationship. Okay. Now I'm about to get crazy. And my wife always loves to hear that. Um. Guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you as best you can to, to get kind of a panoramic view of this paragraph. Just kind of step back without looking at the details. And tell me, as you look at it, who is doing all that talking? Who is that? <laughs> don't, don't say God. Don't say that. Because that's cheating. Gang, Christians believe in a Trinitarian God, don't we? We believe in a Trinitarian God. Same substance, three persons. Each person is assigned certain um, responsibilities within the Trinity. For instance, who died on the cross? That would be God the Son. And when you pray, oh God, I thank you for dying on the cross for me, that's called patripassionism, and that's inaccurate. The second person, who inspired the Bible? Well, that would be God, the Holy Spirit. Who do we normally think of as being the creator of the heavens and the earth? That would be God, the Father. Now, all actions of the Trinity are Trinitarian actions, yes. But the economic relationship within the Trinity, we tend to, believe, we tend to see certain things assigned to each, each person, okay? Now, that said, who is saying all this? That would be God, the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we study the Old Testament. Because the greatest commentary on the first person of the Trinity is the Old Testament. 
And you, so many of you, who have been raised in dispensational circles, have been told that the Old Testament belongs to a bygone era, another dispensation. And consequently, your knowledge of the first person of the Trinity is meager at best. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that's where sloppy, mushy Christian living began. When you got cut off from the God of the Old Testament. I use words like sovereignty. You don't even know what it means. Well, you want me to show you what it means? Okay. Stay with me. Let me show you. Uh, start with me at verse 6. Where is There it is. Uh, Save it therefore to the people of Israel. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out. From under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you. From the slavery. And I will redeem you. From the outstretched arm. Go to verse 7. I will take you to be my people. Verse 8. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. Do you want a little primer or primer? On God the Father and sovereignty? Well, let me give it to you in about eight seconds. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be me, to be mine. I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you. Now tell me, ladies and gentlemen, who is it that said he's going to do all that? A God you don't know. Because we've been told that the Old Testament is... I have people telling me, ladies and gentlemen, they have come from places where the Old Testament was never preached. Never. Well, tell me. You tell me how you're going to get to know him. Because he's the one that's saying to sin-oppressed people, I'm going to come get you. And I'm going to make sure you come. And I'm going to extract you. And I'm going to take you to be mine. And I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to give you an inheritance that will never perish. I'll show you something else. Just for further argument. I want you to go real quickly, if you can find this. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. Let's, uh, let's start reading verse 23. Romans 4, 23. But the, wor- but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us, now listen, watch, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. What did that just say? What did it say? In whom are you to believe? 
in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Who's that? Yahweh. But you've been told you don't need to you don't need to study that part of the book because that's in the the other dispensation. Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, you've been robbed. You've been robbed. You have been positively damaged because you've been cut off from the God who comes to Moses and says, Moses, perk up. I know that if you were to do this, you would fail, but I won't. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do the other. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And when I'm done, Egypt's going to know that I am the Lord. Guys, I want to read you a little quote. Uh, I got this courtesy of Richard Feltus. Um, This is a statement by a news reporter in London in the 50s about churches in London. Apparently, uh, there were several good preachers in London in the 50s. And this um, news reporter was somewhat captivated by Lloyd-Jones, who is, you know, if you've been around here long enough, you know that Lloyd-Jones is my hero. Um, I I would suggest to you that the greatest expositor of the New Testament or old or any part of the Bible is Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you want to get a set of commentaries, get his 16 volumes on Romans. And if you want one book that you will sell your shoes to have, get that Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's several of you who've read that, and, and, and every one of them come back and say, oh, wow. Okay, but this is a, a news reporter who was commenting on the church situation there in London, and he mentions two other preachers, and I've never heard their names before. <laughs> Maybe you have. But um, he says this, Reflecting on Lloyd-Jones' Sunday night preaching, comparing it with the message of other well-known London pulpits, Soper preaches love. Weatherhead preaches Jesus. And Lloyd-Jones preaches God. For Lloyd-Jones, his emphasis was not a matter of personal preference. It was biblical. Ladies and gentlemen, I just showed you from Romans chapter 4, the chapter in the New Testament, justification by faith, where you are being called to believe in God the Father. And yet you don't know what he's like. And so when I come to you with terms like sovereignty and, and holiness, ooh. I'm very unfamiliar with I've heard it before, you know, of course. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it. I'm very unfamiliar with what, what it means. That's tragic. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you what we're going to do. <laughs> Sorry. Um, when I looked at that and I saw, this is why we have to be students of the Old Testament. 
Because I mean, we've got plenty of books in, in the bookstores about God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. Not very many on God the Father. And the best commentary out there is the Old Testament. But we told, we've been told not to read that one. You know, you don't need to read that. <laughs> okay, here's what we're going to do. For the next few weeks, and I don't know how long, I, I, when I first started, it, uh, it was six weeks, and then I said nine weeks, and you know how it goes. It usually ends up longer than the nine. But <clears throat> what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few weeks talking about the attributes of Yahweh. We're just going to plow through some dead, dry, ancient, old theological stuff. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the 21st century evangelical world is deficient. Lloyd-Jones preached God. When you put me in a box and put a stone out front of it, write that on there. He preached God. Not very well, but he did his best. But folks, it was Jesus who said to you, he's praying to his father, John 17, verse 3. And he said, and this is eternal life. That they might know you. I'm going to do my best to give you stuff by which you might not, that you might come to know the sovereign God better. Our Father, forgive us that we have neglected portions of your word and thus we are the losers. We are, we're the ones that are deficient in all of our um, grapplings with who you are, what you're like. And in some measure, oh God, the church is to blame. So forgive us, and would you, would you pave a way for us now to know you better? And might we walk away from here on Wednesday nights with a greater sense of all three persons of the Trinity, but particularly God the Father, the one who said to an oppressed, enslaved people, I will take you to me. And when he stretched out his arm to do it, no one stood in his way. Oh God, might we find that the more we know about you, that you will take our breath away.
in the, uh, the almighty God who we are privileged to call our Father who art in heaven. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.